welcome back to Not Too Busy to Write. I'm Penny Windsor. Before I introduce today's incredible guest, I am excited to announce that I'll be collaborating with Ease Retreats on a retreat for writers working on non-fiction book proposals. It's going to be held in North Wales in a gorgeous beach house and will include three masterclasses on various aspects of putting together a proposal that really stands out. There'll be a chance for all attendees to have a one-to-one session with me, as well as lots of time for informal chats over meals and obviously coastal walks too. The dates are Thursday, April the 20th to Monday, April the 23rd in 2023. Um, It's fully catered, gorgeous cooking, and um, it's a wonderful opportunity to spend a whole weekend doing a deep dive into your work on a book proposal. Ease Retreats also hold retreats from all sorts of incredible authors. So if you are not a nonfiction writer, uh, do check out their other retreats on the website. There's plenty happening in 2023 and beyond. To secure your place, go to easeretreats.com forward slash nonfiction with Penny Windsor. The link will also be in the show notes. I'm very much looking forward to that. So on to today's guest. Catherine Newman is a writer with a varied career. She's written two parenting memoirs, a middle grade novel, and is a freelance writer who's written for the New York Times, Oprah's O Magazine, the Boston Globe, and was also a, po- a columnist for Real Simple Magazine. Her debut novel, We All Want Impossible Things, is about Ash, whose best friend Edie is dying of cancer. Set over a few weeks in a hospice, this book has more laughter and more heartbreak in it than anything I've read in a long time. I laughed so much in this episode with Catherine. Uh, Apologies in advance. Um, She is such a joy and one of the funniest writers I've read in a long time. We talk about the relief of laughing in the face of death, accepting and embracing your voice as a writer, and how having to make a living as a writer throughout her career has really given her an excellent daily habit. We All Want Impossible Things is out now. Please do yourself a favour and read this incredible, joyful and tear-inducing novel. Enjoy the episode. Catherine, thank you so much for being with me today. Rob, Penny, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled. Um, it looks actually like a gorgeous day where you are, by the way. It's, I, it looks gorgeous. I think it's bitterly cold, yeah. but it's very pretty. And where, where are, whereabouts are you? I'm in Amherst, Massachusetts in the United States. So you're in the middle of a proper winter then? A proper winter, yes. Yeah. And has it been, it's been quite a hard winter for you guys this year, hasn't it? In generally, or is it not, or is your region no, no, sort of missed out on some of that heavy stuff? I, yeah, we missed out on some of it. Um, but you know, if it's going to be cold, I want there to be snow and that's how I feel. Yeah. Like, let's just do it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so thrilled to be talking to you today and, um, about your novel, We All Want Impossible Things, which I've just finished and, oh, I've got a lot to say, shall we say? <laughs> I've just, this, this book, my goodness, this book, but, um, I guess I just wanted to to start, you've got you've got a really long writing career with many. You've written in many different genres, and <laughs> this is your debut adult novel, grown up novel. It's hard. It's how do you say that? It's funny, isn't yeah. it? It's not yeah. adult, adult, is it? <laughs> <laughs> grown up novel. Yeah. Um. So I guess where I wanted to start was, um, you know, this potentially could have been um, a story told in many different ways through nonfiction or these themes could be explored in lots of different ways. Why this story in a novel form? Mm. It's a really good question because I, I have a history as a memoirist, which I think is maybe why 
Um, my first novel, you know, hues so close to life is that that's familiar to me giving, you know, taking a set of real things and turning it into a book fiction, of course, then some of it can be made up, which I had to keep reminding myself as I was writing that I didn't need to, you know, stick as close to life as I would in a memoir. I, um, this book is based as I'm sure you saw in the press materials on, um, on a true thing that happened, which is that my best friend died of cancer, um, seven years ago now. Um, and, or eight years ago, God, time anyway. And at, and it was obviously the, for me, it's, you know, one of the defining experiences of my life is having that friendship to begin with and then Mm. losing it. Um, this is a friend of mine from, you know, the time we were three years old and I, really did know that I would write about it. Um, but I, I had this experience, sorry, this is a long answer. No, it's a great, I'm going to waffle on and on and you're going to be like, well, that's our time. (laughs) Um, she, at the time I was so blown apart by, um, the experience of loss as she was dying. This Mm -hmm. is before she had died. And and the form that took, among other things, was first I just cried all the time. I just like woke up crying, cried like throughout my day and went to sleep in tears. But also I was madly in love with everybody. Mm. I just everybody who came into her room to spend time with her, all of the nurses in the hospice where she was. Everybody in my own life, my children who are amazing to begin with, and then were just show they were young then, and they just showed up in the most beautiful way for me. My husband, like it was the most incredible experience, her whole family. And I thought, I'm gonna write a book. <laughs> I said this at the time to her husband. I said, I want to write a novel where someone's best friend is dying in hospice and she's sleeping with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I felt. I honestly felt like if one person had been like, Hey, you want to go to bed with me? I would have been like, okay. Like I just was so blown apart. So that's why a novel. It's long so, answer. It's <laughs> so interesting. I was going to ask you specifically about that because to me, that's one of the most, re- everything feels so real in this novel. Like yeah. everything feels so real, but that the sex and the urge to connect with people just was so recognizable to me. I was living in New York, uh, 2001, 2002. And like everyone after 9-11 was having sex with everybody. And yes, do you remember? Do you remember? It was like, and I say that to people in London and people like, what, really? And I'm like, yes, (laughs) there was so much sex. And it was this, and also lots of breakups, lots of, you know, getting married lots of it was like we were all on the this kind of edge of life where everything it was like you felt like when when you experience grief you know it's like that that kind of acuteness of life you feel it like in your fingertips and oh yes that the acuteness of life yes that that Right. So it it's it's exactly that the impulse to be as fully alive as possible. Um 
while life is presenting itself as so transitory, you know, Mm. that it's, it's so obvious when someone's dying or when there's been a huge disaster like 9-11 that we are just here for a minute. Mm -hmm. And so I think the idea that the main character in the book, um, would be having a lot of sex. It makes a ton of sense to me. I, that is, it is off-putting to some people for, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, but yes, grabbing at life, just just stuffing it in. I I really feel that. So um, just briefly for the listeners who may not have had the chance to read this yet, um, Ash is our narrator. Her best friend Edie is dying, and in a, and this it's set over a number of weeks in a hospice, and um, which, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily expect to be an incredible setting for a novel, but it really, really is. <laughs> but um, but so one thing I I wanted to to ask you is that I mean I really felt Ash on the page. Her voice was so crystal clear to me just from the first page. And um and was it was Ash really clear to you right from the beginning or is, is she did her voice develop over some drafts just right from the beginning? No, no, that's <laughs> I'm laughing because that is the only voice I write anything in is that is that <laughs> is Ash's voice. I have to put that in air quotes. <laughs> that is just my voice, I think, off the page and on. And I I mean if you wanted me to write about like a big sale on cheese that was going on, I would write it in that voice. Like I, I, and I write a lot and it's usually in that voice. I wrote a, I wrote a book about fiber art for kids and it's in that voice. So that's just the voice that I write in. And I don't really fight in anymore because if anybody hires me and that's not what they're expecting, like they're completely insane. That's really yeah. all I, all I Oh, that's so interesting because that reminded me one of, there's so much humor in this book and I, I want to talk to you about that in a moment, but it really reminded me of the British writer Nina Stibby. I don't know if oh you know Oh my God, her. she's the, I, she's okay. the best. You just, right. Now we can end the call. She's been <laughs> my whole day. Well, I, I mean, so I, will tell you, I, will, <laughs> I will tell you a story about that in a second, but, but it reminded me of, you just saying that reminded me of something I've heard Nina say, which is that she fought her voice for a long time. And I it, also did. Yeah. And it wasn't until she wrote well, and published Love Nina because it's yes. a memoir that she allowed herself to use her natural voice. And now she's allowing herself to use that voice in her fiction that she has become hugely successful because she stopped fighting her natural voice. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um I'm just thinking about Love Nina, where I got a press copy when it came to the US. And then I lent it to my son's best friend, who's like a massive reader, and she held on to it. And then I needed it back because I had to read it again, just like emotionally. And yeah. we have traded, she still has it. It is the most dog eared thing you ever saw. And we just still trade it back and forth. She's now 23. And and whenever I see her, we're like passing the book back and forth still. So that book is so huge to me. And yes, I think that I, I hadn't heard that about, about Nina, but that's amazing. I it's, feel that really acutely. It's um it's such a special book. And in fact, actually, when my boyfriend and I started dating, I gave it to him to read. And it was as a bit of a <laughs> test. And 
it was so enjoyable to watch him read it and just howl, uh-huh. howl with laughter and just. And did you have well. to be like, what do you read? What made you laugh? Did you make him read you all the passages yes. that cracked yes. him? Yes. Of course. Of course. I know. That's like the greatest pleasure. So when I was reading We All Want Impossible Things, um, I had started reading it on a weekend morning and um, my boyfriend was in bed next to me reading something else. And I was laughing so hard <laughs> that he was like, what the hell are you reading? <laughs> so he's getting it next. You were like a book about somebody dying. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? And then I have to tell you, um, then, you know, the following day or the day after maybe, I was in the bath reading the last few chapters and I was alternating between laughing hysterically and sobbing out loud uh-huh. so hard that my 11-year-old came into the bathroom <laughs> to check on me. Well, that <laughs> is high praise. Your 11-year-old checked on you in the bath. <laughs> I really appreciate that thing. What's I going on in there? And I'm like, I can't even begin to explain <laughs> what's going on. Thank you for that. So, um, dear listeners, this this is that. There you go. That's that's the start. That's just a little taster of what you're in for. <laughs> but I mean, but that's the thing I think about. Um, I I mean, I absolutely love reading about death. I know that sounds like a really strange thing to say. I really enjoy enjoy death lit, as I refer to it. I've got a whole stack on my shelves, both nonfiction and fiction. And there's something so delicious about being allowed to laugh in these situations. I totally agree. I, I mean, I think that's right. I volunteer in a hospice um, in the town where I live. I've been cooking dinner on Mondays for like three years and oh my god we laugh so much it is so I think there is something first obviously the release of it you know that like sort of gallows humor for sure but also there is nothing like a human body failing to highlight the absurdity of living inside these things they malfunction so ridiculously and it we i truly we really do laugh like i laugh with the patients and then of course we also laugh at them behind their backs but not in a mean <laughs> way just because yep. things are so terrible and and then we all cry it's a hospice and then every day you get an email saying that this or that person has died and then we all cry like yeah. it's every day that's it just is all the things so i i mean i feel like when you talk about that attraction to death lit i think there's something it's i guess it's part of the thing we were saying before about kind of the acuteness of life it's so magnified at the end you know that mm. that it's precious and finite and i think there's something about inhabiting um inhabiting a book about it that just I don't know I have the same impulse as you it Mm. just makes me feel very um human and and very grateful to have some life really alive right just really it's it's like this when I've been through periods of acute grief, you know, immediately after somebody has died. 
it's they're like the moments in my life that I felt the most alive. It's almost like it's the contrast to their not them not being there. And you being so there, like so ridiculously there. Oh, right. Right. With feelings spilling all over the place. It's so true. I mean, that's a, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but I think that's right. That you're very, very alive in grief. Mm. It's true. And it's funny, I guess, like, you know, reading a book like this, which where you're as a reader, your emotions are very become very on the surface because it's very funny, but also it's very sad. And so I I felt, you know, I was experiencing the emotions very, I guess, acutely, maybe more so than perhaps a more kind of gentle, slow read. um, So it's something about that experience that kind of reminded me of being in that emotional place, you know, of, of more acute grief as well. And something else that you, that happens a lot in the novel is, um, is Ash um, is often referring to birth quite a lot during the novel and the similarities between birth and death. And I feel like that's something that's not talked about very much, but um, and I wonder if it's, um, I wonder if, um, you know, I had experienced grief before I became a mother. And so the first time I gave birth, I was very much reminded of like death. I could feel it, but I, I don't, I don't know what it's like for, for women who give birth and also for their partners as well. Um, who give birth, who haven't been that close to death before, whether they have the same feeling, or maybe it's the shock of how, in a way, how close birth feels to death. That is such an interesting question. I feel like I felt I had not had a really acute grief experience when I gave birth to our son and, and the, falling in love with a newborn experience or whatever you would call that. I feel like it's more animal than that, but that's just a metaphor for what that is, I guess. It brought me right up to the edge. I Mm. have never been so afraid of death. I was so afraid that the baby would die. It was like a, I mean, I, I, now I look back and diagnose myself with like postpartum anxiety at the time. I was just like, oh my God, I'm going to feel like this for the entire rest of my life. And in a weird way you do, but you sort of compartmentalize and you you hear an ambulance and you don't immediately assume it's your child. Although I still am inclined to assume it's my child. But uh, I think for me, because it was the other way when my friend was dying, it, I just kept feeling that that um, combination of fear and caretaking, which is so, for me, unique to those two experiences, mm. that all in kind of hands on, you know, there's so few, unless you work as a nurse um, or a doctor, there's so few times in your life where it is just that all in hands-on on on another body. And that's so deep. And it's also like you were saying about when you have a newborn and that, that kind of animal thing almost that takes over that makes you protect them and feel for them and need to, you know, stop death at all costs kind of thing. It's a, 
birth and death both have that similar, almost like reminding that we're animals. It's like a process that reminds us that we are animals. Absolutely. It's so true. It's so animal. I know. I, I really, I feel that. And then you, and then, then you watch a nature show and you're like, yeah, I totally get that. (laughs) Like whatever it is, a bear or a whale just like takes somebody apart. I'm like, (laughs) absolutely. And obviously all the bodily fluids is something that they both have in common as well. And the waiting and the waiting. Oh my God. The the time flying by, but also passing in this interminable way. It's really, yeah, the time. The time passing is so, so strange of both those experiences. There was something that Ash talks about in the novel about this idea of, you know, when you go into a hospital to give birth and you come out at some point, whenever, with a newborn, and this idea that you can't believe that everybody else was just going about their lives while your life was changing in that hospital and time stopped and that how death is the same. You look around when someone's just died and you think, how are you all functioning? Because my person just died. I know. I know. It's very, it's very personal and I think can be very lonely. I mean, I, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of this actually, Penny, until you just said that, but I feel like for me, the experience with a newborn was very lonely and I had a loving partner who I still have. Um, and nonetheless, I felt very alone in this experience of change and fear and being sort of taken apart by this. But when my friend was dying, I really, and it's part of what the book's about, I didn't feel alone. I felt like I was in this, like I was just buoyed up in this sea of people having this experience with me. And it was really beautiful and really un- unlonely. So that was a difference for me that I felt like it was a shared experience that, that was not only not unique to me, but not even primary to me, Mm. you know, it was her husband and kids, Mm. parents and brother. There was just so much love in the room. Mm. And that's comes across so incredibly in the novel, this idea of, um, Ash is so surrounded by incredible people, even though she's losing her almost, it's hard, it's hard to tell, to say it's her most important person. In some ways it is her most important person, but obviously she also has her family and her children, but this idea of losing this person who is her absolute kind of rock and compass, but she is so surrounded by love, um, and actually, but one of my favorite, favorite characters is Belle, her daughter. And even to the point where I was like, thank God she has Belle, you know, because, because, you know, I Edie's feel the same her. way. Yeah. Because <laughs> you sort of, you know, Edie's leaving her and we all know, you know, Edie is dying and she's going to die. It's, there is no way out. And you know, it's coming, 
And I just kept thinking, oh, thank God for Belle. She's just so amazing. <laughs> Belle is the best, is all I can say about Belle. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> there is a Belle character in my life who who um, is really <laughs> just Belle. <laughs> my daughter Birdie and and she was home because of COVID. She was home while I was writing the book. And I basically just transcribed what she said every day into the novel because oh. she's so funny and loving and a tiny bit mean in all of the <laughs> best possible ways. Like she's just the funniest, best person. And so anytime anyone's like, I especially like the Belle character, she's like, yeah, the yeah, Belle. That's me. Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's like to my daughter's 11. And I was just thinking, oh, I mean, that relationship the two of them have is just, it's the dream. It's the dream. Yeah. It's what you want. It's what you hope to have with a child. It's just, yeah. It is a beautiful thing. I know between 11 and, and 17, there might be a few sticky years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Not, um, but yeah, I know we'll come out the other side. I know we will, but, um, but yeah, it was, she's just such a, she's so Bella. vivid and, um, and the, and that actually one of the things that is, is so enjoyable about one of the many things that's so enjoyable is the dialogue is, is just feels so present and fun. And you really do feel like you're sort of being allowed into this incredible little world. Um, oh, thank you, Penny. Well, so, um, you have been writing for quite a long time and, and you've got, you've worn many, many hats as a writer and you've written in different genres. I'd love to go back um, to where that began and how that evolved into where you are now. Um, well, it's, <laughs> I was born. No, I'm kidding. But I, I did want to be a writer when I very first learned how to write, like literally, you know, six years old, learned my letters. I filled these weird um, hardback blank books that we got at my school with stories. I I mean, I wrote, as soon as I could write, I was just like went with it. And I wrote a bazillion stories all the time. And I told everybody I wanted to be a writer. My parents still have all these books. And then over time, that dream eroded. And I, it didn't seem, I don't think it seemed like a thing you could just be, you know, you mm -hmm. can't just be a writer. And I went to college and then I worked a series of horrendous jobs in California. And then I went to graduate school because I didn't really have another idea about what to do. So I went and got a PhD. And the great thing about getting a PhD, if you don't know what you want to do, is it takes forever. <laughs> so I <laughs> that killed 10 years. I mean, like, really, it was the best. And I kind of loved it, to be honest. I taught writing and I taught women's studies. I taught feminist theory while I was getting my PhD, which was all amazing. But I was, I, this was what I was thinking when you were talking about Nina Stibby. I was stuck writing this dissertation in what is supposed to be an academic voice. And I, honestly kept getting in trouble for not writing in that proper mm -hmm. voice that there was a lot of I think I feel there it was funny in parts and and I did feel like I was fighting sort of everything I had to offer 
and it didn't, it was a bad fit. Like it really just was a terrible fit. The teaching was great. And the academic writing was a terror. And I don't, I think it's different now, by the way, this was 25, 30 years ago. I think, I think there's now an idea that people have voices and should use them. I mean, that's part of understanding diversity among other things. But so I got my PhD I had, first I had a baby. This was the wrong order of things. Let me just put this out there for the world <laughs> here. We had a baby. We were so broke. We lived in one room in a friend's house in Santa Cruz, California. We had a baby in this one room. Our lives were so constrained. It's really hard to even remember. We left all that. My husband also got a PhD that he also does not use in philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> We left, we took our PhDs and ran and came back to the East Coast, which is where Massachusetts is. And my family's in New York. I was so homesick. And we basically rented a really cheap apartment and just started cobbling our lives together in this really scrappy way. (laughs) So I had a friend who worked at a magazine called Family Fun Magazine. This is a very dear friend of mine who I still write for. She works somewhere else now. And she hired me. This was my first thing. She hired me to write 2000 words about Valentine's Day crafts. Mm -hmm. And I was like off and running. I wrote that. Then I wrote something else for her. And I started this freelance career where I said yes to everything, Mm -hmm. every single thing. I mean, you could not offer me a horrible enough gig that I wouldn't do it. I, the truth is I'm still kind of like that, but that's a separate issue. So I wrote whatever. I wrote horrible ad copy. I wrote amazing pieces for family fun. I just wrote, 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 wrote. And then I auditioned for and got hired to write this weekly. It, the word blog did not exist yet. I got hired to write a weekly column for a U.S. website called Baby Center, mm-hmm. where basically it was sort of like the dawn of the internet and people would go on to like connect with other pregnant women or women going through fertility stuff or women with new babies. And I wrote a weekly column there <clears throat> for like six years. Mm. So I started it when I was pregnant with my daughter, Birdie, and I already have my son, Ben, he's older. And that was the, I would say the beginning of my writing in, in my own voice. And, and so since then I've published some books and done a million things, but I still will just write (laughs) whatever. We call it whoring here where I'll be like typing and somebody will come in the room and be like, what you doing? Whoring. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, tampon ad copy. I don't know. But we can pay the mortgage and we can eat this month. I mean, I cannot complain. My husband's a massage therapist. So we both work these freelance by the skin of our teeth jobs Mm. and it makes me very unpicky. And on the one hand, I love to complain about it where I'm like, how am I so far into my career? And I still write all this trashy stuff, but it's kind of pretend because the truth is it means I have a daily writing practice. I have to write every day. Mm. I have so much assigned work, much of it, very unglamorous that I simply have to sit down and write every day. And thank God. If I yeah. suddenly won the lottery, I would probably never write again. 
Well, I think this is so important to talk about, this idea that um, I think so often we think before we're in the thick of it with writing, we think, oh, well, I'll do writing when I have more time. But actually, I have found time pressure and needing to earn a living has been exactly what I need to really hyper-focus me and just get work done, just get it done. And then, as you say, like, you know, when you're forced to kind of turn up and write and write and write and meet deadlines, it um, it just makes you turn up and do the work without overthinking it too much. Yes, right, because you can't have writer's block, like, on assignment, really. I mean, you can. It must be horrible. But I don't because the truth is writer's block is really an for me, it's a metaphor for procrastination. I And I know people really have it, but it's true that having deadlines, it's such a gift. Mm. You have mm. to write and do. It's not, I'm just moving. This doesn't affect your listeners, only you. I just- Oh, just, so you don't have sun in your eye? Sun is slanting right into my eyeball. Yeah. Okay, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, And so- You've also written for children as well. You've written a middle middle grade novel. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And so how is that? Was that just an was that something that you just thought, I'm just gonna give it a try? Or were you asked, were you were you told, oh hang on, no, we'd really no, love to hear I thought I'm just gonna give that a try. Um I had this idea. So my kids, when they were little, they didn't get screens for a really long time. I just need to say that as an ex. ex- as an explanation for why they were like this. <laughs> they had a lot of time to kill. They were underscheduled. They were like the only children in the world who had like no activities that they were required to do. They never went to any, did anything during the summer. And basically their entire childhoods were spent looking at the Ikea catalog. I mean, I <laughs> that is... Barely an exaggeration. I can't even, we would have to write away for a new one because it would just fall into leaves <laughs> on that. They just lay on the couch and looked at it all day, every day. They played a thing called the picking game where it's like, if you could have one thing on this page, what would it be? <laughs> for years, for like a decade, this was their <laughs> main activity. And then we would go to Ikea. There's one around about two hours from us. And the kids, we would go mostly just to go because they were so excited about it. So this book, and they used to imagine what it would be like to spend the night there. That idea would close and they would be there overnight. What would they do? They used to just imagine this nonstop. So I wrote this book about these two kids who make this plan to go to Ikea and and hide out and spend the night there. Um, And I had not ever written fiction ever. And I wasn't really sure. I had a lot of good real life notes and experiences and I wasn't really sure. And so this friend of mine and I made a pact where our, it was a writing group of two people and we didn't read each other's stuff. You had to write 500 words a week. Now, anyone who is a writer knows that is very small as an amount of writing, 500 words a week. We had to write on our discretionary projects. I'd never done this before, written something that wasn't requested of me. Mm. I wrote 500 words a week. If you didn't write it, then you had to make a donation to Donald Trump's campaign. <laughs> this was literally That's the proper deal. incentive. 
And I never one time didn't meet my 500 words. I never donated to Donald Trump's campaign. And it was a wonderful, just very small accountability group. And I loved being accountable. And I loved having this. It took me a year of these 500 that sometimes would be more. You know, you didn't have to stop at 500. And it took me a year of these weeks of writing. I wrote only on Fridays because I had too much work and kids to raise. And I wrote a novel and it was totally thrilling to me that, that, mm. that you could do that. Um, so that was really, really fun. And, um, and it was, it didn't do well. It didn't sell well. I'm not, I think, I don't know. Maybe it's not very good is one reason. Not sure about that. And it, I think maybe it was like a little too, I don't know that enough kids have enough experience. experience these kids. But in the novel, I wrote it when my friend was dying. And in the novel, there is the death of a parent. Um, mm. And it, um, I think it was part of what made me think I could write an, a bigger grown-up novel about my friend dying who's that that's my cat (laughs) my big fluffy cat um yeah this is the thing I find so interesting about and I love talking to writers who have had a really multidisciplinary writing career because I think and also just other careers in general as well before coming to writing because I think we bring we learn so much from just sitting down and doing the work, even when the outcome is not exactly as we imagine, we learn that we can do things, right? And then we can then move to the next step. Do you think that perhaps this novel sort of had to come maybe after that, that children's novel in a way? I have never thought of it that way, but when you say it, I like it as a story because it also helps <laughs> me sort of process the not super successful experience of that <laughs> earlier book. So I like the idea that it was like <laughs> a, a part of a process. Maybe that's right. I mean, I, I, I love the idea that we're sort of evolving through our experiences of writing. I think that's a really compelling thought. Um, I work with, quite a lot of writers and and I work with quite a lot of journalists who work on commission and deadline. And one of those big things is switching from deadlines to a self-propelled project that nobody's asked for and nobody's paying for yet. Yes. And I think it is a real shift in our minds. And it sounds like you found that perfect solution at that time, the idea of like you had to replace that accountability from an editor with a fellow writer. Yes. Yes, exactly. And now I famously write with this like sticker chart system that I self-administer where I get a sticker every time I write 500 words that I give myself a sticker I have bought and then I put on my own (laughs) sticker chart. Like I'm a child learning to use the toilet, honestly. (laughs) Well, so I read your acknowledgements and I saw that, um, that this came from the hashtag am writing podcast, which I have also been listening to from like dot. Yes. And I have to say, um, they are hands down 
probably responsible for my first book being out in the world for the same, for similar reasons, like accountability and stuff, just from listening to the podcast. Um, That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So listeners, I'll put their link in the show note. It, they're just and, brilliant, brilliant bunch and of women. And what is your, what accountability methods did you feel like worked for you? Well, partly it was just because I was listening right from the beginning um, and KJ was, I think, writing, was writing her nonfiction book at the time and talking about it constantly as she was writing it and then sold it and then like promoting it and then doing all these things. And I was following her and I was writing my proposal for my first nonfiction book at the same time. And it was like, they didn't even know that they were doing it for me, but they were doing it for me. That's amazing. (laughs) Do they know now that they were doing it for you? I don't think I've ever contacted them to tell them. I will have to. I'm sure they would love to. to hear it. I will have to, but that was actually part of why I started a podcast as well, because you know, that idea of like, you know, I just love the idea that, that I could be that without even knowing it for somebody else, you know, this idea that, um, that people are kind of normalizing, doing this crazy thing of sitting down to write something nobody has asked for. (laughs) It is a bit crazy if you think about it. It really is. I know it's like a, I know I, I called it my hobby when I was doing it because I did not allow myself to think of it as work because nobody had asked for it. And I wasn't, as far as I knew, I wasn't going to be paid for it. So I had to write an entire novel thinking of it as a hobby. Did you, um, for this particular novel, for We All Want Impossible Things, did you already have your agent from your um, nonfiction and your memoir and use the same one or did you, so you already used, had that? Yeah, place. no, I used the same agent. And did they know you were embarking on it or did you even keep that to yourself for a while first? I kept it to myself for a long time because I take, I'm very skittish and easily derailed. Um, mm-hmm. And I did not want to show it to her until it was done and I didn't really want to talk about it and jinx it. Mm. And I really was in this really intense, I wrote it very quickly in this very intense time during the early COVID lockdown where I had a lot of time. I wasn't going, I have a, also a day job. I, I There's more, there's more <laughs> any that I haven't even mentioned. Um, but I waited till it was done. And then I, I, Maybe a month from it being done, I told her that I was writing it. Oh, wow. That close. Yes. And then I, when it was done, I sent it to her. And then um, this will be of interest to you, probably not to like most people, but when the editor bought it, she wanted to do it as a two book deal, that it would be this novel and an uh, alleged next novel and I would not do it that way oh that's so interesting I did not want the I'm too crazy to manage the pressure of being paid for a book I have not written I couldn't imagine doing that like I know that lots of people do that and it enables them to write then you have the money and you can fund your own writing but and also some people use that as their accountability as well they're like oh, oh they've got I've got a hard deadline it's 12 it, months from now I have no choice absolute sense to me that other people do it but it I mean I didn't even want to talk about it it was so frightening to me as an idea that I would be paid for a book I hadn't written so I did not do it that way oh that's 
in a way, perhaps also very smart because <laughs> the book is, wow. I mean, it's not only incredible, but it's receiving huge praise. So I'm sure your your uh, editorial team will be snapping at your toes for the next uh, one, whenever it comes. But um, on that note, and you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but just in general, do you imagine, oh, sorry, my cat. <laughs> oh, my cat. Oh, what a be interrupting. He is very lovely, but he's interrupting. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Um, I have cats too. Maybe they'll be here. <laughs> um, do you, you know, you have written in a number of genres now. Do you do you imagine revisiting fiction? Is that something that you're interested in doing? Or are you, you not decided yet? Or are you just going to remain completely open-minded? <clears throat> I have just finished a second novel for adults. And I don't know, it's with my agent. I mean, I'm at this very real moment of not knowing what's going to happen next. Um, When she asked me what it was about, and again, I did not even tell her I was writing. (laughs) That's how weird I am. I'm so superstitious. I feel like if I mention it, it'll all fall apart. Um, And I described it to her when she asked me what it was about. I said it was about reproductive mayhem. It's about this (laughs) woman who's on a beach vacation with her adult children and her husband. She's going through menopause. She's very very angry. (laughs) I already love it. I already love it. Your family can exactly deal with. There's a lot of people sort of looking away from her at the table while she's like peeling off all her clothes and furious. Um, but it's also about sort of uh, the layers for women who are. Um, I mean, it in some ways it is really most women I feel like it even there are parts of it and my daughter's gay and there are tons there's parts of it that speak to her as like a person of reproductive age that you live in this body and by the time you're 54 or whatever age my narrator is I'm assuming it's that because that's me you have been through so much Mm. I have been pregnant like 3000 times I have tried to get pregnant. I have tried not to get pregnant. I have, I've been, you know, cesarean to part twice. I, it's so chaotic and crazy. And then if you're, you can cut this part out of the podcast, by the way, but then (laughs) it's, I won't be offended. And then there's this moment where if you're with a male partner and they're like, Hey baby. And you're like, are you kidding me? Like, (laughs) it's just like for them it's just sex and for you it's like this invocation of trauma (laughs) and like (laughs) anyway that very particular experience of the hey baby and the are you fucking kidding me I wanted to write a novel about that (laughs) and I have and we'll see I think it'll be a very narrow um readership (laughs) no no honestly I no I I oh it's so funny actually one thing I was going to mention as well about about Ash something that I adored about her was there was a lot of anger 
there. I mean, <laughs> there was also so much love and so many and grief and all these things, but there was also anger. And it was just, oh, I love seeing that in a, in a middle-aged woman in a novel because I'm just so recognize it, the deep rage. <laughs> and but you want to like be nice in the world. Yeah, you like, want to be I, nice and you want to love people and be loved, but also the world and everything is things. making you crazy. <laughs> all those things. I know my agent, she has actually read it already, but she, she was like, should we call it all the things? <laughs> I was like, maybe. That's really what it is. Anyways. Oh, well, Penny, oh, I have I'm, now spoken of it more to you than to anybody else in the world. Literally. I feel so privileged. <laughs> Honestly, I I cannot wait. I cannot wait. I'm so excited. I was really, really hoping you were going to say I've written another novel. Because I'm so glad. Well, if nobody buys it, I'll send it to you as a wish. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I will just lap it up. Um, Because honestly, this this book, I it's sort of hard to describe how all-encompassing the experience was of reading it. It does feel, it's so vivid. It's so real. Ash is so, is just, she just leaps off the page in the most incredible way. It is utterly incredible. I really, I want everyone to read it. I want everyone to read it. It's going to be that book that I'm going to be giving people that I want uh, to read. Thank you for that. So I'm very excited to hear you're writing more fiction. Um, well, thank you so, so much for oh, chatting with me today. It was just delightful. It was so lovely. And I hope we have occasion to talk again. Yeah, me too. Thanks so much. Thank you, Penny. Mm-hmm.